0: What's up, folks? We are back again with another uh, little random review that Zach and I like to throw out there to mess with you. Um, we're going to review No Sudden Move, which is the new Steven Soderbergh movie, um, which uh, dropped on HBO Max, which is really kind of like the godsend in this year when all these movies are going on to it. The HBO Max, the first year, is really spoiling us. I think second year of HBO Max is going to be really disappointing, when we suddenly don't have like two to three like really high-level movies just dropped for free on that service every month. Well, this one's a little
1: different. This isn't one that's doing day um, in theaters, day on um, app at the same time. Soderbergh has the like only streaming um, deal that his movies go straight to streaming. I think he still has a couple movies on that. So next year, we're, we're going to get more Soderbergh movies
0: that are going to be straight to streaming no matter what. Let's be real. It's Steven Soderbergh. He'll release two more movies before the end of the year. He's totally capable of dropping one in October and one in December. And, and the theories. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Steven Soderbergh rules. Um, let's do a quick little non-spoiler section for people who have not checked out No Sun Movie yet. Zach, why don't you go first? Tell us, um, like, if you were somebody asked you to recommend this movie or asked you if they should watch it, what would you say to them?
1: Um, I mean, it depends on the type of viewer you are. Um, if you can appreciate... Like style over plotting, I think there's a lot to get. If you appreciate the vibes and the general um, rhythm of the, of the movie without fully understanding what's going on, if you're comfortable being confused by the plot, um, then this will be for you. If you like a lot of these um, you know, noir and detective um, genre of books or movies um, like The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye, these kind of things that are so, their webs are so thick um, and twined together that it takes multiple you know views to really understand what kind of um, is going on. If you like that genre of things, I think this is for you. But if you're easily frustrated by kind of just constantly being lost in the mechanics of what is going on with this heist, um, I think you're going to be turned off pretty quickly because I think it comes like 40 minutes and you start to kind of being a little off um kilter with what's going on and i'm fine with that i enjoy that that rhythm and i'm okay um you know being lost because i can get so caught up in the chemistry of the performances the style of the direction um the the overall atmosphere of it i think Soderbergh captures
0: quietly so if you can be you know lost in the world i think there's a lot to get you know from this movie Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think also another way to put it is just if you like Steven Soderbergh's movies, you're probably going to like this movie. It it feels very akin to a lot of his other work. Um, It is definitely a bit of a slow burn. It definitely asks you to kind of commit to something and just kind of go along for the ride, even when the movie is not necessarily telling you uh, all the information about why everything that's mattering is important. Um, It's got a good cast. They have some fun dialogue. They do some fun stuff. There's some good scenes. Um, I don't think this is necessarily like top tier Soderbergh, but like, I think it is very much enjoyable. And I don't think that if you are someone who's enjoyed previous Soderbergh, that you will walk away from this being frustrated or annoyed by uh, the movie you watched. I think it's just kind of a, a fun, kind of chill, uh, slow burn high school. I
1: think if you're going and thinking this is an Oceans movie because it's him doing another heist movie, I think you could be frustrated. If that's your primary experience with Soderbergh, it's not as flashy as the Oceans movies or quick or even, you know, trying to be as charm filled as that movie is. This is a little darker, a little denser
0: than those movies are. Yeah, it's it's it feels like Soderbergh. It's a Soderbergh movie that's trying also to be sort of like a 1950s heist film like it is a little bit slower less flasher you don't have as there's not as much of a gang dynamic to it there's not as much of a let's build a team full of people this is sort of just we took three random people and put them together to do something and we don't really understand why any of them are involved in it but like you just kind of have to go along for the ride and yeah yeah. This is kind of the center of diagram in, in
1: Soberg's interest with good German being on one side and oceans being on one side. And
0: the, the, when the interests kind of merge, I think is this movie. It's a good way to put it. Um, we're going to transition to a spoiler section now. Uh, if you've not seen the film yet, you can go to HBO Max. I do not believe this is playing in theaters. Um, it may be playing somewhere. I was looking around and I did not see uh, any theater dates. But let's jump into that spoiler section. Um, and give a little talk about this film. So a uh, little plot description. This movie follows Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, and um, which Culkin brother what is people? it? The, who? Kieran Culkin. They are the okay, three yeah. people given a job. They're essentially given... Um, Cheadle is given a job. They're supposed to go to David Harbour's house and make David Harbour go get something from his boss's office for them. We don't know what it is. We don't know why they want it. And they're supposed to do this by holding his family hostage. Um, to be babysitters, essentially, is what
1: they're hired to be to
0: watch them while
1: he goes get the papers.
0: Yeah. And John Hamm plays kind of the, the standard John Hamm uh, cop guy. I feel like yeah. we've seen this in the town before. This is not a, a, a surprising role if you've seen John Hamm in other movies. Um, no, he Duke does get to flash
1: back the, like the acting style of it. Cause he is acting more in a classic Hollywood film. So to take the town and his badman character slam together. There's a yeah. little more of a stylized way that he speaks according to what he's doing in the town. So it's something a little different. He's just still not cop. He's typecast at this point.
0: He's a, I mean, he, sometimes he does get into the most, um, Noah Duke plays David Harper's son, um, in a role that I don't really understand because he feels like he's way too talented of a young actor to get put into a sort of generic kid role. Uh, So that was a little bit confusing. Uh, Bill Duke uh, plays a, uh, another like gangster boss. Um, You know, we all stand Bill Duke. He's great. He's always fun. Um, And Ray Liotta plays this is. I mean, this is part of the problem with the movie. It's like that's why I got confused. Ray Liotta is another one of the bosses, I believe. He's another crime boss. But then they make him seem so low level in the conversations. Well, I think like the honest. I think the honest truth of this movie is that everyone is pretty low level. Like Cheeto mm-hmm. feels like a pretty low level, like gangster, and even the bosses feel pretty low level. Like the stuff they're doing. I think doing that's is-
1: part of the point of the end and the like surprise cameo. The five hundredth surprise cameo that Matt
0: Damon has made. Or
1: is he he's, was he announced in the cast?
0: He, yeah, he's credited in the cast. This okay, is not, he is credited. Okay. So it's not a surprise. Is, this is not Deadpool 2 where he's credited as Dickie Greenleaf or I don't think he's even credited at all in Unsane, but like this is one of the ones he's actually credited. Okay.
1: Well, I think part of the point of that character and his speechifying that he gives is Pretty much announcing that everyone may think they have power, but they're all low level. They don't know what field they're playing in. So the Bill Dukes, the Ray Liotas, they all are still subservient to the you know economic power of B of Matt Damon and the true money
0: power players. Yeah. Um, also, Matt Damon is just really good in these. Really so good. He's so good in these. He just comes on. You're like, hey, that dude's a fucking movie star. And well, it's, yeah, it's the best thing in the movie. It is 100% the best scene in the movie. Sort of like he was great and insane as the detective. He's always yeah, you didn't really- get good. You didn't get this in the plot, but people are listening to the spoiler section. Like, hopefully you know
1: what happened. But, you know, through, you know, a lot of backstabbing and um, the tables being turned on deaf people, leads to Don Toodle, Benicio Del Toro, finding who's really kind of been trying to pull the strings of all this um of, of what it turns out to be like a a paper a document with secrets about um catholic converters is
0: um, that the weirdest thing about the movie is this movie starts off and you're just like this is a generic no nothing like heist movie and at the end of the movie they're like yeah this was a whole conspiracy by these corporations to cover up the fact that the Catholic a- converter existed and, and pollution was a thing and like they got into
1: a true story
0: it's, it's such a random, like they ties it into the true story at the end of the film. And um, it's kind of a baller move by Soderbergh because uh, you don't expect it to go there, but he kind of pulls it off and it really does work. Um, but then, yeah, a- Matt
1: Damon's is the power player at B that really was playing the strings and he basically tells everyone, you don't even know where you're in, you just kind of happened upon this placement, good for you, feel like you're winning today, but always know that you don't, you're, you're following the
0: rules whether you know it or not. Yeah, it's so weird. It's so hard to talk about this movie because like the plot of it is so hard to weird. understand. It. It's hard to understand. They don't necessarily explain it as much. And this is kind of why this movie requires you to just kind of like immerse yourself in the world. Um, because they don't really understand the plot. They've always kind of just discovered it
1: as it goes. And even at the end, you think Don Chito only understands twenty five percent of what happens in that character. Kind of it, it, even at some point when Benicio del Toro comes out with all the money, um, for a little bit before he gets shot to death, um, in a pretty surprising scene, he's like, things just like fell my way. Like it was all just circumstance, luck, and he definitely had no
0: idea. He's just like somehow everything fell in my way, and I end up with the money. Who knows. Basically, the only characters who really seem to know what's going on are Damon and sort of John Hamm. That's the only character. John Hamm, ever- really, yeah, it was in on it at some point, but also. He, he gives all the money to Damon at the end. That's the scene that also does. They're the like game. maintaining the order of the rich is what it kind of made it seem like.
1: Like the police was there to main, you know, maintain the caste system in a way.
0: It's 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 interesting. Um, we talked about Benny Saldatorio. Ben I, I had one good comment about the Matt Damon scene before he moved on. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You have seen Network before, correct? Yes, I have seen it.
1: Okay, there is something. It was a toned down version of the Ned Diggity scene in Network. Is that scene really rung to me, to where it mm-hmm. go, goes in with a power player and there's kind of an unhinged, um, like weed-tinged philosophical comment, like, stuff that doesn't fully make sense, but he's kind of just speaking out of his ass, but Ned Beatty does it at, like, 500 miles per hour shouting every word, and Matt Damon, it seemed like his spin, if he was able to give a network speech, how he do it in a Matt Damon way? In a more toned down, you know, um, not serious tone, because there's a bit of humor to it, but more grounded version of what Ned Beatty is doing in that work,
0: and I found that very interesting. It's interesting what I think of it. I'm going to throw a question to you, which is: It is Matt Damon, Soderbergh's muse at this point. It feels like he's, he almost. These trans- are three of his most used actors: da Datoro, Damon. Yeah, even Bill Duke has been in a number of his movies. Or, or even let me put it a different way: Is Matt Damon Steven Soderbergh's Michael Caine? Wait,
1: who's? Oh, you mean like Michael Caine? Nolan.
0: is in every Nolan film, and that like <laughs> to the point where like he's the voice of Air Command in Dunkirk. In the same way, almost Damon seems to show up in every Soderbergh movie. And i am be honest, I'm yeah, I guess more important.
1: than a De Niro or a DiCaprio, because they're only the leads for Scorsese. But someone that, yeah, appears. Maybe, what about, he's like his
0: Samuel L. Jackson, the Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, something like that. Somebody who, like, sometimes they have the big role, like, you know, uh, what's the informant or something? And yeah the informant or like but sometimes it's just like they're the un, uncredited detective and unsane yeah.
1: he's just always there just to, to suit the role
0: that is there for him but never playing above what he should be cast and he hits like a grand slam home run in that one scene in this movie like he just absolutely owns um he's so good i do also want to talk about another performance in this film that i really love so julia fox who we first saw in um Julia Fox, I, different. I don't like her performance, but go on. I think she's one of, like, weirdly one of the most magnetic screen person presences I've seen in a while. And I've seen her in, like, two movies. Um, I'm just, every time I watch a movie with her, and I just leave wanting more for her. Not in terms of, like, like I think her performance is not enough, but I just want more screen time. With her. I just find her absolutely engaging and fascinating to watch. Um, she, in this movie, plays Ray Liotta's wife and, um, Benicio Del Toro's girlfriend who in the end um, kills Del Toro and then is robbed of the money by an officer sent by John Hamm to restore her. Um, yeah. I just find her just a truly fascinating screen presence who has barely even scratched the surface of like being in movies.
1: Now I find her character interesting, but I think her performance is a little um, mm. like one noteish in its coloring. I don't think she she can play the solidities of that kind of character because to compare it to is who I think is great is Amy Simons. And a role that could easily be nothing, but the the way she just, like, carries the body posture of that character and and the, like, tiredness of her speech adds, like, a whole history to that character that you kind of understand everything she's been through with David Harbour and um, what that, this event and moment, you can really get inside her head where, um, oh, my gosh, I forgot her name. What? Amy, We're Simon's are talking about well, no Maybe. Julia Fox. Julia Fox, thank you. Julia Fox, I don't think can really bury under the surface of a character. It's all surface level oh. those at this point. But Amy Simon's kind of blew me away with how like she 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 made it seem like she thought that character was the lead of the movie. And I think
0: I would agree. She's the better performance in the film. Fox is just somebody who has like as a screen presence outside of really, regardless of the movie she's into somebody who's just intrigues me um yeah simon's is really good and has a really tough time to play this um kind of conflicted person who's stuck in a situation where she's being held at gunpoint so there's the threats of her and her family but also at the same time like the robbers are openly taunting her about her husband's infidelities and like having to play both like she gets angry about stuff and then has to tone down her anger because she has in a dangerous situation and has to make sure she stays safe for her and her kids is um yeah, she's probably the most nuanced performance in the film.
1: And maybe a lesbian. I think there is notes that there is like a sexual relationship between her and the other friend. That there they is had to one, repress because of the nineteen fifties.
0: There's one scene where they joke about going on vacation together and like, would their husbands care? And I can't tell if that's a it, it's our husbands I can,
1: I, until she gives the line, "Good luck getting away with that one." Is what she tells her. Like it would all be kind of a cover
0: that they would kind of know. I can't tell like they're if trying to right. hide something. I can't tell if they're hinting at them being lesbians together or if they're hinting at the fact that their husbands literally couldn't survive without them. Is this a commentary on sexual politics or yeah. is it a consonant on relationship dynamics where men if their wives disappeared on vacation literally wouldn't be able to feed themselves? I was unclear if that was uh, leaning in one yeah. way or the other. What do, Har- what do you think of David Harper? What do you think of David in the film? Uh,
1: enjoyable. Like he's a, a buffoon, but I think supposedly like purposely a, a buffoon. And he's the first character that, like, um, unfills a twist of the movie. Like, he was in on it more than New Thought for a while. He was the first one for the tables to be turned, and that kind of caught me off guard. And I think his kind of overwhelmed, exasperated version of that, like, he knew he was in over the head. I think he delivered that pretty well. It's kind of like a Coen Brothers character is what Mm -hmm. he he was kind of giving. Like, this could have fit in a Fargo-esque
0: thing. And I, 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 I found him pretty adorable. Yeah, I think he kind of just, he does, he has a thing that he does, and he does it yes, pretty so. well. Yeah, he's kind of this, you know, kind of a little bit of a bumbling dude, but he also kind of, sort of reminds me of uh, a modern-day Ralph Bellamy um, in sort of, like, the the square-jawed, like, sort of nice guy husband, but also kind of a buffoon at the same time, who sort of gets, you know, walked over by the people who are a little bit smarter than him. He, also, yeah,
1: he kind of has, like, a Marty thing
0: to <laughs> the way he hears himself. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, I think we kind of talked about everything in the film, like well, we didn't talk I-
1: about the leads at all. Benicio del Toro, Don Cheadle. I think Soberg just has so much faith in just their general like coolness, yeah, and that you just like to see them exist. And I do think Benicio has a turn on that. I say at, at the end of his when he just comes out with all the money, he's just like thrilled and excited. Made him a little more buffoonish than how he carried himself the, re- the rest of the film. Like it, it was all like a cover, this like chill cover to show that he's competent, but really it kind of seemed like he was just going along with the flow and hoping things would go his way. And he's not really a man with a plan. Don Cheatles was the actual smart one with a man with a plan throughout it. That's some sort of strategy. So I found that an interesting comparison between those two characters. Um, Cause for a while you think they're very similar and kind of ended with the same game and two people leading the way until how they twist it at the end. Um, but, but I, it's nice to see them, like, co-lead a movie. Um, they're not given the chance often to do that anymore outside of Soderbergh films. They're often shown as supporting actors or the villain in Space Jam A New Legacy. Um, so it, it's, it's nice to see them leads. And I think that, that's a big part of what makes the movie work is not just at all the points we talked about, but watching them get a chance to banter with each other. And and be in this situation and act in a 1950 style because once again the plot is not enough to make you engage in this movie you have to be engaged in the overall filmmaking and the acting of it all and I think they make it work.
0: Yeah, I mean they also bring in some interesting like racial politics. Uh, there's this scene at the end where John Hamm wants to take uh, Don Cheadle into custody and Bill Duke is like let us deal let with us let us deal with our own. You've already got a race problem in this city that's about to boil over if the cops do it. Um, you know, you'll get yelled, you'll get to become a problem. If we take care of him, then you can solve the mystery and find the body and you won't have to deal with it yourself. And then that inevitably leads to Bill Duke just kicking him out, giving him money and sending him off to Kansas City, which is an interesting kind of twist where you actually do think for a moment that Bill Duke's going to get rid of him because he doesn't seem to have any respect for him or interest him. But at the end of the movie, you see like this, that was just a play used to get him away from the white dude so he could kick him, so he could get rid of him. By sending him to Kansas City, but without having to kill him. And, and basically faking his death because they tell John Hamm, like, we're going to kill him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just kind of a chill, fun, enjoyable ice movie. Set in the 1950s. Do you think you'll spring. rewatch it anytime soon? Like by the end of the year. So I'm not a big rewatcher, but I definitely could see myself rewatching this if I was trying to compile. A, like a best of 2021 list. I think when I start making that list, this is a movie I probably would revisit sort of like a, a sort of the, in the similar vein to Spike Lee's The Five Bloods that I rewatched last year before making it. Cause it just yeah. comes early enough in the year, but it also seems like a film that, you know, if at the right moment hits you at the right time hits you, this movie could really, you could really go up. Um, yeah, I don't think it'll go down.
1: That's why I ask. I feel like this is a movie made to be rewatched and to engage with um, or multiple viewings. And I think it's not going to get the claim. Maybe it deserves like the fan base because people are going one try and then dismiss it. I think a little too quickly.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think a lot of things, I think it's going to be hard for, I don't think anyone walks out of this and goes, that movie was amazing. I think there's a lot of people coming out. That was good. That was enjoyable. That was fun. It's nice to have a new Soderbergh. And in some ways the problem with the, like the downsides of Soderbergh style is that he makes so many movies that it, it is easier to kind of, push them aside It's just like a fun Soderbergh joint rather than a truly great film. Um, he does seem like he's, so he's to- made
1: four streaming movies now, right? From High Flying Bird, Laundromat, Let Them All Talk, in this. Yeah, and I've seen all four. All right. So this would be my second favorite of those four. Though. Honestly, I think I have exactly the same rating on all of them. <laughs> You automatically give Soberg three and a half out of five. No, I just crazy. I feel
0: like these movies are, at least all four of them are kind of three and a half stars. Yeah, I don't like Laundromat. I actually really like I what um interview. I think it's really fun um and kind of crazy and weird. High five. And that's high-tier Soberg for me. I would say Let Them All Talk is probably my favorite of the group. Okay. Um I would say Laundromat I like, but it's probably last. And then I would say it's probably high flying bird second this one third
1: i think oh, yeah. this is just an important divide in his career and i think this group of movies is something that you're going to be able to compare his streaming era soderbergh because this is where his mission seems like how do i produce make movies at a high volume with stars i love with like less stakes like he's not going for the biggest blockbuster movie or to win awards he he's releasing them for essentially what he feels like it's tv like streaming
0: yeah, it's
1: Matt jumping, not aiming for the stars every time. He's aiming for what you said, like, oh, that's an enjoyable movie. So I, that's yeah. why I think thinking about them as a collective um, is going to be an um, interesting thing moving forward.
0: It would also be very interesting to compare, like, this era of Soderbergh to, like, an early era, era of Soderbergh. Because there's just, like, especially, like, I guess this is his kind of streaming phase. His big, his big famous phase was... 2000, 2001, when he does Ocean's Eleven's Aaron Brockovich and uh, Traffic. That's kind of his famous. Yeah, yeah, that's when he's. And Out of Sight was 99, or is that 98? It's 98. It's a couple years earlier, so I didn't include it in the same because it falls inside like the same um, time frame as uh, you see for these three films, which have all come out in the last uh, 2019 to 2021. But yeah it's interesting he has kind of done this stream thing and honestly as a as a movie watcher i'm totally excited to sit here and every year and have like one or two three and a half star soderbergh movies every other year like that's me just like that sounds like a fun time there's yeah. we get so many movies every year that are just disappointing or frustrating i'm very excited to just experience a movie that is ends up being exactly what you expect it to be like i don't i'm not gonna I'm, i didn't expect no sudden move to be Five out of five. I just wanted it to be. I thought it was going to be fun. I thought it was going to be a fun Soderbergh movie, and it kind of lived up to that expectation. Yeah, agreed. Awesome. Um, do you want to do like top five Soderbergh before we hit out? Or- uh, I
1: I have I think quite a bit of Soderbergh holes. So that I don't feel fully comfortable with Like I haven't seen Out of Sight. How many? I, mean, you, I can, how many, how many, how many I can make up a top seen. five of what I've seen. How many have I seen? Yeah, like it. So I mean, I've probably seen everything. He's done – I don't want to say in the whole decade because I don't know when, like, Che was made and stuff. I didn't see Che. So maybe che I think I've seen everything in the past decade. But Behind the Candelabra? Oh, I had not seen Behind the Candelabra because I dismissed that as a TV movie. It's supposed to be quite good from what I understand. So it's really good. Um, but most of the, the past decade I've seen – I've seen Ocean's 11 and 13 and not 12.
0: That's very weird. They're all on HBO Max. We should, I need to watch twelve and thirteen because I've never seen twelve and thirteen.
1: I'm just um, eleven. Yeah, Aliceine's. I think the one, a like, huge one, and maybe Che.
0: That I have not seen. Um, oh, and I had not seen Sex Lies of Videotape. See, I've never seen. I've never seen his really early ones. I've never seen that. I've never seen the Limey. I've never seen stuff like that. No, same, same.
1: Yeah, I don't know what my maybe favorite. Maybe one day we'll do a
0: Soderbergh month and we can prepare a little more. Yeah, let's do that. I'll just say I, I really loved... I, ke- I, I The one that keeps get growing on me the more I watch it is Logan Lucky. I think that might be my favorite Soderbergh film. I,
1: I like Traffic great. more than most people. People start hating on Traffic, and I think it's very engaging. Well-constructed movie.
0: See, I don't hate Traffic. I just don't think... I think Traffic sort of falls into the three-and-a-half-star range for Soderbergh, too. To me, it's not <laughs> super impressive. A lot of so This is something I've realized looking at my ratings. A lot of Soderbergh is in the three-and-a-half-star range. Like, he just seemed like he just... He just like, like makes solid, consistent movies. He feels like a he's a director who just
1: rarely misses. And your but three and oh, a half is my four, and most of my Spielberg's are four
0: stars, which I think is kind of the same rating for us. I, yes, I would argue that I'm, I'm probably a, I'm probably more critical uh, of a, a of a raider than you are when it comes to. Um. Yeah. So that has been No Sudden Move. Your review of No Sudden Move from us. Um, we know it would be kind of a quicker one than some of the other ones because this movie this doesn't is have what much. The
1: new reviews should be, not 90 minutes with Pixar rankings.
0: Yeah, that, that got out of hand. Um, like <laughs> that one long We aim for ago. 20 minutes to a half hour for new reviews. Yeah, and then sometimes we do like 50 minutes on Godzilla versus Kong, which is one of the weirder reviews on there how long minutes. was Girl in the Window? <laughs> um, I can look this we, up for you. We it. don't have to. We could talk about this off camera. Uh that was 39 minutes. Those of which we did was 28. That was like the real short one.
1: So officially, Girl in the Window better movie than The Set of Moves we talked the about. The shortest that. review we've ever done is probably
0: for the best movie we've ever done, though. Which is what? A Quiet Place too Went for like... That was short. I thought we talked about Aliens on a Boat for like 30 nope, minutes. No, Went for like 25 minutes long. That's as long yeah. that was. Alright. We're done here. Thank you, folks. Um, come back later in the week for more regularly scheduled programming. We'll have more reviews upcoming. Um, and, uh, yeah, have a good time. Peace out.